0: She is able to devise these poems that say two things at once, and if you want to believe that she's the sweet lamb (laughs) and just just a very docile mother, or you know, fine. You can read the poems that way until you see that one line, and then all of a sudden you realize that far from being uh, supportive of the environment as it was, she was highly, highly critical.
1: Elizabeth Ranker from the English department at The Ohio State University. It is Sunday, September 10th, 2017, and I am sitting in Arlington, Massachusetts, with Professor Paula Bennett, and have a fantastic opportunity to ask her to tell us the story of how she discovered Sarah Morgan Bryan Piat a poet who had essentially been lost to literary history and whom Professor Bennett came upon in her research and later produced the first scholarly selected edition of Sarah's poems since Sarah's death in 1919. So Paula, I'd like to just ask you to tell us the story of how you found Sarah, um, what year that was, how you feel things have gone since then, and what you think needs to happen next.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I've started this... I've told this story more than once, um, and I enjoy talking about it. Um, I was working on a... I decided to work on an anthology of 19th century American women's poetry, ex-Emily Dickinson. That is, there were a whole group of young poets, or women poets, who had um, <clears throat> been publishing at the same time as Dickinson and before and after, and nobody paid any attention to them. So I was at Harvard at the time. And I, w- took Widen- I went to the Widener Library, which had a fantastic collection of periodicals. And I started going through the periodicals rather than the books because um, partly it was just more more active... Uh, kind of writing and you knew the date and you had more information about the poems if if you worked with the periodicals than if you worked um from books and so on so I started at A because I'm an obsessive compulsive and I started going through every copy of every periodical in uh, <laughs> it was insane uh in Harvard uh and I think that um this was from um 1800 to about 1915 and i just went through one after another after another looking for women poets and i started collecting poems and um as i went along i was beginning to realize that some of these poems were really good (laughs) And I was getting fairly committed to this whole crazy project, and I'd gotten up to um, the G's galaxy. And galaxy is up periodical periodical. all the time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I came on this poem. Um, Giving
1: back the flower.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Giving back the flower. And um, I read it, and I will never forget as long as I live. <laughs> uh, my sensation when I read it, I didn't know the poet. Um, i never heard of her. All I knew was that this was a great poem, and I mean great. Of all the poems she wrote, for me, this is the most powerful. Um, it's the most extraordinary, and I was just incredibly lucky to go get to that poem. I also realized as I was standing there that Piat had to have written other poems because this poem was too good uh, for her not to have been a professional writer. And um, so I realized I was going to have to go back to A (laughs) Mm -hmm. and start looking specifically for her Mm -hmm. because I was sure that I had missed. Um, other poems by her, which indeed I had because I had already gone through the A's which meant the Atlantic and as I discovered she had 30 poems in the Atlantic alone
1: Could you just talk for a minute because we have students listening uh, certainly who haven't had experience working in periodicals talk for a minute about why the Atlantic you had got, already gotten through A to G up to the Galaxy mm-hmm. Galaxy had a broader, somewhat different readership Mm-hmm. Why tell, tell tell us a little bit about why the Atlantic is so important in this?
0: Well, yeah, um, the, Atl- the Atlantic is is really important because, yes, she had thirty poems in the Atlantic, no no doubt about it. But they were poems that, on the whole, the reason why I hadn't picked up on her first was because they were very conventional. Um, in comparison to something like um, the galaxy, galaxy, and was more we're more willing to to um, experiment mm-hmm. and also tougher poems, um, and so yeah, I had missed them, and in a sense, some of them were missable. If you Very know what I may. I had to find her her really serious poems. The the ones that were, for me at least, in terms of my thinking, uh, have been by far the most important were not the Atlantic poems. They were poems in in newspapers. They were poems in um, odd places um, where she could really speak in her own voice, I think, more easily because she's a very ironic uh, and difficult poet and the atlantic was prone to want poetry that was more uh, uh not just conventional but um, more regular and um didn't wouldn't ruffle feathers quite so much Piat yeah, was really a political poet a very deep political poet as far as i was concerned and um, none of her political poems got into the the atlantic <laughs> Um, I think even so, Scribner's Monthly did better than The Atlantic. So. Um,
1: yeah, it's a very, very interesting part of this story that when you did not yet know about her, it should have been through reading The Galaxy that you found a poem that struck you as a great poem. Mm-hmm. And then, if I'm understanding the story correctly, only later did you go back to The Atlantic poems, which, as you just said, were missable yeah. because they were publishing. Not necessarily the same kinds of poems as Galaxy.
0: Yeah, well, I was looking at poems that had for poems that had character. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know how else to put this. You know what I mean? That made me, you know, as Emily Dickinson says, I feel like the top of my head are blown off. Uh-huh. Um, and all the poets that I have worked with seriously in the 19th century, um, in later years, every one of them had at least one or two poems like that that were really powerful. The difference between them and Piat was that Piat did this with extraordinary regularity, (laughs) as I learned. Whereas these other poets, they would have moments of just coming out with these marvelous poems. And then the rest of their work would be conventional. And so it was, it was just an incredibly lucky find for me that I, I found giving back the flower because it was unequivocally a great poem. And therefore, it forced me to go back and take a look at what I had missed. And I did not immediately. I didn't wait. And just said, okay, I have to stop going forward and I have to go back.
1: And you went back to A. I went back to A. <laughs> now, another thing you've just said that I know will be very interesting to our audience, uh, and this, I think comes back to the issue that by the time this happened to you as a scholar, you already had a lot of experience reading 19th century poems. Because I know when I speak publicly about Pia and I talk about my first reading of her and Mm -hmm. realizing she was great, people often say, how did you know? So students and general readers often have this question, sort of, what was the basis for judgment? How could one poem have that effect on you? Mm -hmm. So what I want to return to for those listeners we have is um, that you, it sounds like if I'm getting your story right, you had this experience in part just because you simply had such a large database in your head of other poems people were writing at the same time. And within that universe of poems, this one stood out. Is that accurate?
0: yeah i mean it, it, i didn't i didn't have half the um number of poems in my head at the time that I found um flower as I have now okay. <laughs> because I was still in the fairly early stages of this project um I had decided as i said to do an anthology of nineteenth century american women's poetry nineteen hundred to 1800 and a little bit past uh, um, 1900 Mm -hmm. and so it was it was you know as far as I'm concerned when you know you know you're dealing with a great great poem when as I said as Dickinson said you get this feeling this rush the language and the concepts Mm -hmm. meld in such a way that it's breathtaking and um i think that for different people there are different poems that elicit that kind of um response i am assuming that there are people who would not get like turned on by um uh, if that's okay to use the expression um by giving back the flower but might find another one of her poems just so stunning stunning that you know they want to go on with her um the quality of a poet, it, to me, is almost measured by the, the kinds of poems, ha, ha, their ability, different, their differing abilities to uh, arouse of that kind of de- desire in, 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 in a reader to go on with this poet, to find out what else they said, to connect with them, um, that it's, it's, you know, it's not something that is. You can go to a list of qualities and say, "Okay, if the poet has them, this and this and this and this, then it's a great poem." It that will not work. You have to have some kind of strong response to it, emotional response, really. So, um, well, you know, I
1: think I think another uh, topic that comes up here certainly for our um, students and and uh, our general audience would be that. Sometimes our contemporaries find it difficult to read 19th century poems because of the, the, the style, the poetic diction, yep. um, what they perceive to be the remoteness of the utterance compared to very contemporary poems. So um, this might give us an opportunity to talk about how you feel about Sarah finding her moment now with contemporary readers. Do you think that's something that can and will
0: happen? One of the weird things that happened with Piat, and it astonishes me to this day, and it says something about cultural currents, unarticulated cultural currents in in the environment. When I found Piat, to my knowledge, nobody in the world knew about Piat except me, um, that she had been completely lost. I did not know that there was a young woman going to Dartmouth, was doing her honors um, paper on Sarah Piat. Uh, she had been, I guess, an assistant to uh, Professor Spengeman there. And she had fallen in love with Piat, not with giving back, but with another poem. And um, that she is still writing on because she loves it so much. It's this passion that you can get for Piat's poems that sometimes fascinating. But in any case so and then there was a third person who came who was a minister I believe, wasn't he? Yes, he still is. Yeah, yes. He's a minister. And he had found Piat also. Um, both Jess and Larry, Larry were not prof- professional professors. <laughs> they were not academics. But what they did do is they showed that um, this poet had a staying power among very, very different people. And that um, it was a very important moment uh, for me to realize that, you know, it was just by luck that as that happened, not only that I had discovered her, but I was the first one to publish. No, did Larry's book
1: come out? Larry's book came out in 99.
0: 99. So his book actually came out before my book. And
1: the uh, Penguin edition... Edited by William Spengeman and Jess Roberts, that you were just referring to, mm-hmm. uh, was published in, I believe, ninety six. Mm-hmm. So, and then your edition, *Palace Burner*, came out in two thousand one. Yeah. So you're talking about this uh, moment when she was being discovered by individuals unaware of one another. Yep. And I, when I teach. Uh, PI, I often tell that story. I talk about all these people unbeknownst to one another quote-unquote discovering her at the same time. Mm-hmm. And the anecdote I tell, which many of them know from um, former schooling, is the what we talk about in the history of science as the discovery of the calculus mm-hmm. by Leibniz and Newton at the same time. Simultaneously.
0: And it also in electricity. Oh, good point. Yeah, um, that that's why I said it's cultural currents uh-huh. that are moving towards yeah. something. Okay, um, <clears throat> where there are a whole group of people that are seeing the same thing, but you know they they, they are not talking to each other.
1: <laughs> so maybe this this could take us. We're going to just have this interesting freewheeling conversation of uh, topics tied to one another, but. Know my own experience with uh, teaching Sarah and talking about her um, to graduate students, undergraduates, the general public, she really speaks to people now and um, I think it's fair to say, you and I have both done a lot of work on this topic, it's fair to say that although she was very popular in her own time, by the time of her death in 1919 she was falling out of print.
0: I think what happened there is that 19th century poets were very skilled at rhyme. (laughs) And um, they are, it was desired partly because the 19th century as a whole, um, the readers and writers really liked rhyme. They saw poetry as a part of music. Mm -hmm. And um, they, they, enjoyed it. It's part of what gave them pleasure when they were reading. And, uh, excuse me, At the, after the turn of the century there was this shift to free verse. And um, free verse, it's very hard to listen to free verse and then go back and read rhymed poetry for a lot of people. I know my students, uh, when I started bringing in Piot's poems, most of them could not get over the fact that she was rhyming. And um, they didn't like it. It felt uncomfortable for them. That wasn't the kind of what, rhythm mm-hmm. that um, they were, were accustomed to, which was a, their own... Free verse is a marvelous way to write poetry. You know, it's, it's not that... The, but so is rhyming. <laughs> They're two very different and they, I, think they, I I don't know how you feel about it, but I think they clash. I think it, it's very hard to move from one to the other that, that you know you' either you. I know I have one poet in the anthology who did start out rhyming, and this is toward the end of the century, and then she shifted over to free verse late in her life. But most of the people who rhymed stuck, stuck to rhyming on their whole life and um, when free verse came along those who were writing free verse just could not tolerate rhyme. So that she was caught in that she as a, as somebody who did rhyme um, she and, and the fact that she also wrote a lot of poems about motherhood uh, and various other things that the 20th century really turned against particularly the women poets because they did not want to be seen as like the the like the archetypal uh, Emily Granger yeah. Emily um, Grangerford <laughs> um, poet, you know. Grangerford. Gr- Gr- Emily Grangerford, right? Gr- yeah, I Twain's, think so. Twain's uh... Twain and yeah, the, this mock poet yes. that Twain has a marvelous fun with. Mm-hmm. And I I love what he does with it and he's absolutely right. She's
1: Emily. Granger yeah. Grangerford.
0: Yeah. She could write a poem about anything so long as it was sadful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's, um, when you can understand why um, the women, that 20th century women were really, they want, did not want to be identified with that kind of poetry and er, male. Well, I don't know if I want to get too far into this, but um, uh, most um, male readers do not want to read women's poetry, and they don't value it. And it doesn't have, for them, the cultural power of male poetry. And um, therefore, uh, she, she was lost. And um, there were those who, who knew that this really wonderful poet, and once looked. Um, But uh, basically she was totally buried. Um, She did not have uh, what kept some of the other 19th century um, women poets alive. She did not have one thing that they had, which was coteries of friends who um, protected their reputation to some extent, or, or something else that would have allowed them uh, to be kept in historical memory. Mm-hmm. And so, how and people like that, there were a whole group of them Emily, uh, Emma, Lazarus, uh, for different reasons, where at least name recognition existed. Mm-hmm. With Piat, nothing. Right. Absolutely nothing. Because she was an oddball. She was born in the South, uh, her family was slaveholders. Um, she married um, John James Piot in sixty one and came north but she was always seen as a southerner even though she got out of the south and she was anti-slavery but she wasn't an activist in any way she became a mother and um, was raising her children and she really didn't know how to build her reputation in any case she was not that kind of a writer she wrote for the love of writing.
1: Now this is something of a tangent, but you and I share the interest in producing uh, new waves of scholarship, looking ahead into the future where many, many more people will join the hunt for historical and biographical information about Sarah that you could certainly not take on uh, yourself in your first uh, earliest wave of recovering her. And as you know... When you research uh, the Piots, both Sarah and her husband, John James, in 19th century periodicals and newspapers and reviews and so on, they usually describe her as a Western poet, um, sometimes align her with Ohio, which is, of course, the state she moved to when she married into the Ohio Piot family. But you raise the issue that she was born in Kentucky in 1836 into a family that owned slaves. And one thing I'm wondering about is her accent.
0: She she spoke with a southern accent. Do you,
1: do you, uh, are you aware of any sources where people talk about how she sounded?
0: Uh, yeah, the Tynan, Catherine Tynan. Catherine
1: Tynan does.
0: hmm yeah. She had a soft southern accent. Okay. Y'all. <laughs> That's how she would speak. Uh-huh. And, um, she, when she was sitting at the, at the dinner table with her, with the family, she had seven children, six of them very active (laughs) or overactive young men, uh, who liked to go out and shoot things and, you know, were very, apparently very boisterous. They were homeschooled a good part of the time and they were, I think a few of them were somewhat crazy. Um, but, um, she, uh, she and she herself, uh, according to Tynan, she would just sit there at the, at the table, and when her husband would reprimand them, she would say, Now, now, John, <laughs> don't let you. And this is very southern. Um, I didn't really re understood in some ways how very southern she was. She, if you She was living a double life, and that double life is is something basic to to the female culture in the South, that um, they did not argue, they did not fight, they did not stand up for their rights. Um, If they were going to do anything, they had to do it behind doors. Um, If they saw anything that a man did that was wrong, they had to say it behind doors, but they would prefer not to. Uh, the South had a very strong patriarchal streak in it and, and the southern woman uh, felt that she had to really support uh, her husband and it was a very it was a very hard life. and Piat, who was I think probably a good deal smarter than her husband, um, but and she knew that they were running. They ran into debt and it was getting worse and worse and worse. They ended up in total poverty. Then, um, you know, he was he was not a competent provider. The one really good job that he had that he was successful at, interestingly enough, was in Ireland. He was um, an American consul to the Cork. And that was a very, very successful period in his life, and it lasted for about ten years. Um, But she went down with him. She was totally loyal. This was all Southern. And I I hadn't really, not fully appreciated just how Southern she was until I I started working with her early poetry. That is poetry written before 1861 while she was a young woman in in the South. And it just opened up so much, my understanding. And I didn't understand this when I was writing Did the the selected edition. Um, I dismissed the early poetry, and it was a very... (laughs) It was the worst mistake I made. And I don't think... You know, when you come first on something and where you're really doing the kind of biographical work that I had to do in just to do a selected edition mm-hmm. and to talk about her. But in any case, uh, so I made a very, very bad mistake.
1: Well, um, we mentioned earlier the issue that when you discover someone new, you can only tackle so much of the mm-hmm. information. Mm-hmm. And um, again, this is much easier for... Um, people who work in who do this kind of work to understand, it's, it's something that I find students and general audiences are actually extremely interested in once you explain what does it mean to do scholarly detective work, and um, that you actually have to go out there and find the records.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, people tend to think of great poets as poets who are available between the covers of a book, I I can get the book and it will tell me about this person. And so to get people in touch with what it means to say, no, there were no books. (laughs) So that means you are going to scattered libraries, perhaps all over the world, as in the case of Pia, and get into the Irish materials. And you have to find the stuff. Mm -hmm. And so this was one of the uh, projects you undertook in Palace Burner, your selected edition. And um, I think I'm recalling correctly that you did include three of her poems early
0: poems yeah.
1: Uh, yes and of course let's let's remind our listeners that those poems that you're talking about now from before 1861 are before she married into the Piot family Mm -hmm. so at that time she was Sarah Morgan Bryan Mm -hmm. but also publishing under a bunch of different names right sometimes Sally sometimes Sally MB Mm -hmm. Uh, and so even finding her in that in that sense becomes complicated.
0: Yeah, and I should also add there were 160 of those poems.
1: <laughs> and we're talking about poems now published in the Louisville uh, Daily Journal and the New York Ledger, right?
0: Yeah, and I, you know, I it was sort of like, okay, there's an embarrassment of riches here, I cannot I, I, I think one of the reasons I misread the, the poems so badly, mm-hmm. this is the early poems, is because I just couldn't face having to deal with 600 poems. Yeah.
1: Hey, uh, <laughs> that, is a, that is a great issue to bring up, again, talking to people about what it means to do this kind of work. In order to get a book into print and to say, look, I found this new great poet, you simply cannot do everything...
0: No, you can't.
1: In the very first installment of this kind of uh, discovery, right? Well,
0: I could never have found a publisher for it.
1: Right, good point, yes. <laughs> then, and again, a, audiences do It's, don't it's as simple that. as that. But yeah, that, right.
0: um, if I, the, If you're going to do an edition of an unknown poet, you do not start with the entire herb, no matter how good it is. Mm-hmm. You have got to give people a taste first because mm-hmm. the publishers... I'm not going to risk putting out an expensive book of six hundred poems, but um, Alice burner' a hundred and something poems out of that entire I had to you know it was sort of like which child are you going to burn? <laughs> are you going to keep, and which one are you going to kill? It was very, very hard, um, but you have to to realize that if if she 's as good as you think she is, which I really believe Sarah is. Um, then people are going to come along later, and they're going to publish these other poems. They okay. will get published eventually. So, so
1: this is—I think this is a great opportunity to, for us to move on to the issue of where you think we are. And when I say we, I mean both the profession of scholarship in 19th-century American materials, and also we, in the very general sense of American culture, in terms of reclaiming Sarah. Where do you think we are, and where do you think we're headed? What would you like to see happen with Sarah?
0: Well, um, I know you asked me about Sarah and Dickinson, so probably was the best place to put this uh, in terms of, okay. Uh, in, ter- in terms of the Reclamation of uh, Dickinson, they did, not, they did exactly what I'm saying, which is they produced a small book first. And um,
1: you mean scholars when they first yeah. found Dick, when they found yeah. Dickinson?
0: Well, I'm not talking about scholars. I'm talking about uh, Higginson and Oh, oh,
1: okay. We're talking back after he, Emily Dickinson's death.
0: Yeah, after Dickinson's death, when they finally found that you know she had how many hun- hundreds, eighteen hundred poems, 1800 yeah. poems um, that uh, many of which had never seen the light of day. They were in her 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 um, desk, and that's it. Or bureau, rather, and um, because that first edition sold so well, there was a, a new edition with more poems, and then there was a new edition of more poems, yeah. and they left them out in small pieces. And it was because it takes time for people to absorb, uh, you know, a whole lot of poems. And once they did, um, they they didn't get a complete version of. Dick, uh, dickinson's poems for another hundred years if i'm right or at least 75 somewhere between 75 and 100 years 100 years um because you know it, it, we look back now and why weren't they all published and you know, you couldn't do it at the beginning you simply couldn't so um and then, along with the fact that you you know you finally get people to to start reading these poems, um, you also hope that you know they will start bringing in academics will come along and they will start bringing in biographies and critical studies and all the other things that we associate with Dickinson now and we think you know must have been there forever. Well, they weren't. <laughs> Um They again, come in slowly. Um, there's a kind of pattern really, to the discovery of a writer. I think we were talking also about Melville. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think, the same story. you know, yes, a yes. little bit is there, and then they start moving, and they de- develop more and more around the poet. When I first um, got involved with, with Dickinson, um, and this was in the '70s i um went there, and at that time she she was no one basically except to some kind of eccentric women who seemed to think she was a was a very fine poet and uh, there was took a long time for Dickinson to she's now unquestionably our greatest poet, as far as I'm concerned.
1: Well, I uh, I think given that statement you just made, you're going to get a lot of uh, kickback from the Walt Whitman people, if no one else. But <laughs> that, you're entitled to your judgment. I,
0: I think she's a better poet, mm-hmm. and um, I it, it it's partly you know she's the, uh, her her ability to to write to use images to, to uh, create questions to. Again, the power of writing that just runs right through you, as I said. But different people have different favorite writers. Otherwise, it would be pretty boring.
1: Well, as you know, because we've been discussing Sarah Piat since we met through Sarah Piat about 15 years ago.
0: Was it 15 years
1: Something like that. I I can think about the exact date. I think I first uh, wrote to you in um, 2001.
0: Oh, good. I need that Yeah,
1: 2001. And I've taught Piat now to undergraduates and graduate students for many years, and they love her instantly. They find it hard to believe that people didn't love her. So telling the story about her coming back is always very interesting in the classroom. And one of the questions I pose to them is, why do you think she's finding an audience now? They always have very interesting answers to this, and one of their answers comes back again to an argument you have made, so let me ask you about that now. They say they really appreciate her irony, and they feel that we live in an age of irony, Mm -hmm. that their generation is a generation that Mm -hmm. appreciates irony, Mm -hmm. so could you talk a little bit about whether you feel that's part of why she's finding an audience now?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Um this is what makes her modern if you know, if, if I dare to use the word. Um, Pia if if you if you are told by your culture that you cannot speak honestly, forthrightly. Uh and critically, uh the way you see the world which Pia couldn't from the get-go all of her poetry is is ironic. It isn't simply the, the poems that she wrote after 1861, her, her early poems are built on irony also, um, she could put it in her verse, what she was really thinking. And um, what happens is you get these poem after poem, there's this gulf between um, the conventional world or the world that 19th century people and then even 20th century people wanted to believe the world was like, and um, her own knowledge of what it was really like, uh, whether it was slavery or the treatment of um, the peasantry in Ireland uh, at the beginning of the 19th century, which she writes about. She has a wonderful poem called Primrose Poem. The Primrose... In
1: Primrose Time. In
0: Primrose Time. And it starts out with everything's lovely, in Ireland is lined during <laughs> during uh, primrose time, the springtime, and everybody loves everybody, and the and the lamb and the what is it something the white lamb, white and lamb the black ox, lamb, uh, um, are happy together, and all of this kind of thing. And she said, then it's and it all it can. You you're better at remembering uh, lines than I am. It could all be wiped away with a drop of honey, a thousand years of crime. <laughs> a thousand years of crime, yes, right. <laughs> and, you know, it comes at the very end of the poem and the last couple of lines. Mm-hmm. It wipes out the entire whole previous poem. But I have had reader after reader who does not get it. Yes, They, they miss, yeah. they fly right over it. And this is what I mean about the essential southernness, southern woman mm-hmm. in her poem that she is able to devise these poems that say two things at once. And if you want to believe that she's the sweet lamb <laughs> and just, just a very docile mother, or you know, fine. You can read the poems that way until you see that one line. And then all of a sudden you realize that far from being um, supportive of the environment as it was, she was highly, highly critical.
1: And this takes us back to the issue, first of all, of how we might think about her and Dickinson as contemporaries, which they were, and also about why she was lost and then rediscovered. Because as you and I both know from reading lots of reviews in the 19th century, Sarah was often described as, in quotes, sweet, Mm -hmm. a sweet singer and so on. So we get back into what were women poets expected to do? What were their poems expected to talk about? And uh, what were readers reading for?
0: What they were reading for was much more musical. They 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 identify poetry with music. Mm-hmm. And if you were if you were um, Edmund Spenser, the wonderful Spenser, Spedman, Spedman, yeah, yeah, and a wonderful um, example of this, uh, where you know for him poetry was supposed to be music, mm-hmm. and everything was supposed to be. You're, you're smiling. Well, I'm
1: smiling because, you know, I'm thinking here's a poet that uh, a, a lot of our audience probably is not familiar with for very interesting reasons, but I'm thinking of her fellow southerner, Sidney Lanier, mm-hmm. who has mostly been lost now. Some people are starting to write about him again, but but he, he defined poetry as music and had very complicated theories of poetry as music, as you know. Mm-hmm. And um, it's very hard for readers in our time to read his poems and understand that part of it, that part of what they were doing with their musical theories is very hard for contemporary readers to understand.
0: Yeah. And we don't think about poetry as music anymore, except unless it's rap music.
1: Well, and good, <laughs> good connection, coming back to your topic of rhyme.
0: Yeah, I think a yeah. lot of
1: undergraduates now can connect, especially with what you were saying earlier about poetry as music, once you point out that rap is poetry, and is driven by beat and rhyme, and then it's easier for them to say, "Oh, oh, that—that's a big part of what they were doing." Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they—they they see the rhyme I and the music in in the 19th century was was much sim- simpler, I think. Um, and um, was not it was not socially. I um, say, rap is talking about the society and. I guess dreams would be, would be the right word for what goes on in a lot of uh, 19th century poetry. Okay.
1: That's a great topic, yeah, the topic of dreams. And you've written recently about Southern women poets in particular, and um, dreams and dreams that turn into nightmares.
0: Yeah. And it P- 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 was, um, and basically Southern women were having nightmares. And it was. Their poetry is, is filled with this kind of terror, um, p- pain, or else grief. So I've, I've become very interested in Southern women poet because of this, and because Sarah, when I began to realize that Sarah was a Southern poet, I've started to truly really try and understand Southern women's poetry. And it's nightmare poetry, a lot of it.
1: Um, Now, um, linking Sarah as a Southerner who moved to Ohio, and then of course, as you and I have talked about this uh, at some length, she lived in several other places, including Washington, D.C., and then of course she was in Ireland for 11 years, but finally came back to North Bend, Ohio. So, in a lot of ways, she also then became an Ohio poet or a Mm -hmm. Western poet. Um, Ohio was called the West at that time. So. Comparing Sarah to these other Simen, Southern women poets you're talking about, who wrote about these—you call them fever dreams or nightmares—do you think there's a difference um, in
0: Sarah's
1: poetry because she left the South?
0: Um, she totally. I've, I've never. I, I doubt if you could find a better example of a poet moving from one style to another. Hmm. Are her um, southern poetry is very byronic and very, very lush. The imagery is lush. This is partly what confused me. I didn't hear the irony behind the lushness. I made the same mistake that others have made with her uh, um, later poetry of the, you know, seeing the surface and not seeing what was underneath it, missing the irony. Uh, her, her, what happened was that at when she moved north, uh, the 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 south was still very much involved with Byron, and Byron it was a very strong influence in southern poetry, and um, it wasn't appropriate for um, for a woman to read Byron, but all the girls loved him. <laughs> And uh, so she was, this was all coming, you know, it was very, very clear. The, the poems are very long. The imagery is, as I said, very large. She mo- started moving at the very end of, of just before he, she left um, um, f- the south for the north. She started writing shorter poems. Um, and they were still, they were uh, in iambic pentameter. Um, a lo- a lo- Most of her southern poetry is in iambic pentameter. Uh, when she went north, she started writing iambic tetrameter. And she started rhyming much more uh, conventionally, if you will. Yes. And it's, a, it's like a totally different voice. But the person, the mentor for her, for her new writing in terms of irony was browning <laughs> and so she goes from robert browning robert browning yeah not enough. <laughs> that's right <laughs> and thank you for clarifying that because there's a big difference she followed uh, robert browning and you get this uh ironic incredibly ironic um poetry that uh she starts developing through dialogue and she starts having these poems where her children are interlocutors with the voice of the mother. And the mother very often will give what, oh, you say XXXX X, 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 and then, uh, but there is this tension between the mother's way of looking at the world, which most of the time is very bitter and very angry, and the way the child looks at the world. Or the child says something that the cha- mother meditates on as she realizes the truth of it and the sadness of it. And you get these very complex dialogue poems. And this is... It's just, you know, it's like apples and oranges. It's just two totally different ways of writing yeah. um, between the, those two periods.
1: Right. And this is a great example, isn't it, uh, to come back to our original point of discussion that you found this poet all this work needed to be done yep. in more recent years you've gone back to the poem she wrote before 1861 and said this is another major body of work I didn't include it the first time we need to go back to it now and we can understand it in a new way and that you yourself are seeing irony there that you missed the first time absolutely so it's opened all these doors for work we need other people to do mm-hmm um,
0: yeah, we might as well say here, I'm 81. <laughs> and and uh, I would love, absolutely love to do more on Piat. But I, I felt like my mission, if you want to call it that, because it really was, it was for me, it was a mission, was not just to Piat. She was my most f- favorite poet. She was the poet, uh, the finest poet that I found. But I found a whole lot of other poets that I felt deserved to be brought back, deserved to be respected. Poetry for women, this is not... You have to make a distinction between male and female poetry in, in, this, in, in the 19th century to some extent because the women were much more... Um, well, they had a lot more political beefs than the men did. The men were... You know, a lot, the men wrote much more. As far as I'm concerned, the men were the ones who were having the problem with being totally conventional. And they were very romantic about women and, you know, all kinds of, you know, again, going back to Stedman, mm-hmm. um, that, you know, they wanted a world, a dreaming world. They were a, and also in terms of their own, with the kind of thing that you're doing now with in your new book, where you talk about um, they, poetry's high calling. Uh, women did not write because they wanted a high calling, with the possible exception of Dickinson and Um They wrote partly to make money, because um, they this was one way, and also because they needed, because they were not allowed to say things either. But unlike where Southern women could not say things anywhere, women in the North were able to use their poetry as a political discourse, and they did. And so you've got these wonderful, angry poems about uh, the way in which they were treated. Um, and uh, some of them are absolutely brilliant. They're really moving, they're wonderful poems. So I. I felt like I had to when I when I did both not just the anthology but I did a book on women's poetry in the 19th century. Um, I felt that you know it was really a, a responsibility that I had that I couldn't just drop them and spend all my time on Piat, because then I would be doing what this culture had already done and said okay well there's there's one woman poet in the 19th century who is worth studying and all the rest of them are what we thought they were which is no good and that's what would have happened if I had just kept on pushing Piat and not looking at these other poets.
1: Yeah so perhaps another uh, lesson where we're drawing near the end of our uh, time talking today but um You and I have both been working in the profession of literary studies for a long time and 19th century America for a long time, and we share this interest in the the rediscovery of Sarah Piat, but I think it's important also to say to our audience that, um, you know, Paula Bennett has just been referring to an anthology she produced of uh, American women poets. There are a lot of poets in there. We pulled the book off the shelf the other day and we were looking at it. So you could say um, we also have our blinders, whatever they are. Every generation does. There's a possibility that there are other poets out there that someone will come along and see what that poet was doing and has done in a way that I can't see, that Paula can't see, that no one has seen yet. And that person also might become a fresh voice that people read in a new way and understand mm-hmm. it in a new way, right, Paul? Yep, yep. Um, so one great story here, um, Paul mentioned this briefly earlier, and I, I like to tell this story because audiences connect with it, because pretty much everyone has heard of Herman Melville mm-hmm. and understands that he's an internationally great writer, and yet to remind people that a 100 years ago, he was an unknown writer mm-hmm. and was rediscovered in the 1920s and defined as great at that time, Um, is a very important story. It reminds us that history is always changing, how people understand literature is always changing. The story of Emily Dickinson is uh, one that shows us that kind of change again, and we're in that moment right now with Sarah Piat. Um, So Paula, if you could just share with us a couple of things you would like to see happen, practical things you would like to see happen in Piat studies, say, in the next 10 years. It sounds like you have a really strong interest in seeing people tackle those earlier poems that haven't been collected and published.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's one of them. They, they really need to be, they need to be published one way or another. Uh, with, you've had a project um, at OSU uh, that has put digital versions, or will put digital versions of the uh, early poetry. Uh, on the web. Mm-hmm. And I I want to see the poems from the journal mm-hmm. also put on the web because they're really important. And um, they open, the, you put the two uh, groups of poems together mm-hmm. and you find that she was stringing storylines between the two sets of poems. So poems that you get in the journal um, are the issues reflected in them are also reflected in the ledger, and she's weaving together uh, events uh, with with um, the speakers that uh, are occurring in both sets of poems. It's absolutely fascinating. I have I, I don't know how she kept all those balls in the air. Uh, there is she needs a biography. She needs um, a concordance. She needs all the, um, oh.
1: All I'm those looking, tools, right? All
0: those tools that uh, mark canonization and that enable scholars to do the work they do, and they can't do it without them. Um, and at the moment, uh, she's got only one selected edition. There may be three versions of it out there, but uh, selected editions, and that's it. And um, what I want to see for Sarah is also, however, that she gets, that she gets into classrooms everywhere, that she's accepted as a necessary poet for the canon, and and um, there are a lot of things that come with that too. You know, having students um, write write on her, uh, using um, using them in the classroom. Uh, getting her work appreciated for for lay people as we call them, <laughs> uh, where you you have um, ordinary people who love poetry and there are lots of them, mm-hmm. uh, reading her poems and doing things with them. Um, and whenever I, see, I I collect those things on the web, you know, try and figure out what who's doing what with Piat and I mix it up with both. Ordinary people who are fan piat and just love her, and you get these marvelous pians to piat, and um, academics who are working on her. So it's, it's it, there's a huge community around any poet. If if they're going to get into the canon, that's necessary.
1: Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today, and. Um, Certainly, we all appreciate the pioneering role you played Mm -hmm. in uh, bringing Sarah to attention. I, myself, remember the very first time I read one of her poems when she had me at the very first line, literally, Mm -hmm. uh, and it was a career-changing experience for me. So um, I'm sure on behalf of everyone who's listening to this recording, too, we offer you our thanks. And is there anything that you'd like to say in closing?
0: repeat read piano. Have fun. <laughs> okay, good. Great.
1: All right. Thank you so much, Paul. Yep. Discovering Sarah, America's Lost Great Writer, is produced and recorded in Columbus, Ohio, with the support of the Ohio State University College of Arts and Sciences Technology Services Studio, the Ohio State University Rare Books and Manuscripts Library, and the Ohio State University Knowledge Bank. Sound engineering by Paul Kotimer, produced by Kayla Probion, and featuring the song, The Heresy of Paraphrase, by songwriter One Man Book.